You're listening to God at a Distance, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we discuss how to move through the fear that keeps us distanced from God in order to pursue deeper friendship with Him. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, I want to I want to discuss this afternoon um, the fear that comes up inside of you when you are caught in the act of what let's just call a misdeed. Okay, so I want you to think about a time in your life. <clears throat> oftentimes, this happens in childhood, but occasionally it happens in adulthood as well. Think about a time when you were caught doing something that you were not supposed to do. Or maybe you were caught not doing something that you were supposed to do, okay? We call those sins of commission and omission. So think about a time when you were caught in the act, okay? I have, I have a very acute memory from childhood of being caught in the act. Uh, I think I was in third grade, and I was having a sleepover with my friend Matt when we lived in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota the first time. My dad was stationed there with the Air Force. So staying over at my friend Matt's house, third grade, we were mischievous little boys, and we decided that we were going to exercise our freedom by playing outside all night long. The whole third grade, outside all night long. And so we did that. We went outside, and we did what third grade boys would do outside all night. We had a rock fight. If you aren't, aren't familiar with that, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's little boys picking up rocks and throwing them at one another till one of them cries. So that happened. We started a fire in a, in, a, in a coffee can. This is all one night. And if you're wondering why my kids don't get to do sleepovers, this is why. And, uh, and we just generally ran around the neighborhood. And we were, I'm telling you, I remember it. We were having the night of our lives until Matt ruined everything. I don't know when it happened, but we were in his driveway. It was 5 a.m. And all of a sudden, I'm like, Matt has a lead pipe in his hand, which is concerning <laughs> in the dark at 5 a.m. And all of a sudden, Matt decides for some reason that it would be a good idea to throw said pipe. So he whips this pipe and it slams directly into their garage door. And it was so loud outside, inside it must have sounded like a bomb went off because within seconds, his like six foot five dad is standing in the driveway, dressing us down, wearing nothing but the tidy whities he'd been sleeping in. That memory is burned in my mind forever. So he comes out, and the, here, here's the thing. Like, we were, we were caught in the act. There was nowhere to hide. There's no denying it as we're, like, in the driveway, like idiots, and the pipes laying right there. Like, we were, we're going to say, like, no, somebody else did it. He went that way. Like, we were, we smelled like smoke. We were freezing in the driveway. Like, we were caught in the act. And as you can imagine, that was the last time Matt and I had a sleepover for a minute. We were not, not allowed to do that anymore. But more than anything, what I remember about that night is that moment when his dad came into the driveway. <laughs> not just because of the underwear, although that is still something I probably should talk to a therapist about. But what I remember is the fear that came up inside of me the moment that pipe hit that garage door and then seconds later when his dad came out that door. And I was so afraid because I knew two things. Number one, we were caught. And number two, we were in big trouble. 
Now, here's why I start with that story. That same fear, the fear of getting in trouble, the fear of judgment, the fear of being condemned, to use a a biblical word, that fear is the exact same fear that keeps so many of us relating with God at a distance. We live with this conscious awareness of our brokenness. We live with a conscious awareness of our fallenness, of our sinfulness, to use another biblical word. We, we have an awareness of that. We have an awareness that we all do things that, we are, that God has called us not to do. That's called a sin of commission, when you do what God says don't do. And we have a conscious awareness that we all sin by omission, that we don't do certain things that God has called us and commanded us to do for our good. And so as a result of that, we live with this fear of condemnation. We are afraid that we are going to be in trouble. And so we have this fear that if we were to actually slow down and draw close to God, we fear he will condemn us because we are, again, aware of our fallenness. And and the reality is that that is the same fear that keeps so many people from coming to God in the first place. They fear, man, if I come to him, I will certainly be condemned. And so here's the thing. The reality is our sinfulness, according to Scripture, is not in question. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul states quite clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So our sinfulness is not in question. What is in question is God's response toward it. And so the real question is, is God's response toward us in our failure one of condemnation? That's the underlying, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious fear that we all possess. And so the question is, is God's response toward us one of condemnation? Is he, in fact, waiting to shame us? Is he waiting to shun us? Is he waiting, in the proverbial sense, to spank us when we fall, when we fail? Is God's response toward us one of condemnation? And so to answer that question this afternoon, I want to look at a story in the New Testament of a person who is caught in an act of overt, objective, and obvious sin. And I specifically want to look at how Jesus responds to this person in this moment. And so today, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about the fear of condemnation. And we're going to spend our time together in John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you can open to John chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 2 to 11. If you don't have a Bible with you this afternoon, all the scripture will be up on the screen, so you can just follow along there. Now, just for the sake of context before we drop into this story, it doesn't require very much. much. It's a very standalone story, but here's what you should know. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is doing what Jesus did. He is investing in his disciples. He is healing the sick. He is teaching, and he is dealing with almost constant criticism and conflict, primarily from the religious elite of his day. And so all of that is what's going on in and around Jesus' life and ministry at this point, and that is the backdrop for this story in John chapter 8. So with that said, let's get into this together. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, the story starts like this. At dawn, he, speaking of Jesus, went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Now, there's two points on which 
almost all scholars agree about this text. The first one is that this story is not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And the second thing that they agree on is that this story most absolutely happened, and as a result, it was added to later editions of Scripture. And I say that because if you have a Bible in front of you, you'll notice that it is marked as such, either in the footnotes or in the text. But the second reason I think it's important that we know that is that we understand there's all these things that get said about the way that the Scriptures have been translated down through time. And so, and, and many of them are overtly false. And one of the things is that, like, these, you know, whoever these people are that translated the scriptures did so in a way to, like, pull the wool over everyone's eyes. I think the fact that in our text it specifically says this story is not included in the earlier manuscripts, which is exactly what it says in the footnotes, is a sign, like, no one's trying to trick us, okay? If there's any question about a story or a verse, a word or a phrase in the way that it's translated, it's almost always called out specifically in the text or in the footnotes. Any, anybody love footnotes? Nobody, yeah, two of us, good. These are my people, okay? The rest of you are like, what's a footnote? And why are we talking about this? Okay, so those are the two points they agree on. This story was not in the earliest manuscripts, but it absolutely happened, and as a result, it was added later. So what I want you to pay attention to in this first verse is the setting in which all of this takes place. Notice that the setting for this interaction that we're going to read about doesn't happen in a private place. It's not in someone's home. It's not in some secluded place. It's not in a quiet space. This is going to happen right in the outer area of the temple. Now, the temple was the center of all religious life in the first century in Jerusalem. It was the visible symbol of the presence of God on earth with his people. It was a sacred, holy space. And so Jesus' practice was to come with his disciples to the outer courts of the temple where both Jews and Gentiles were allowed to be present and to pray and to listen. And he would sit as these crowds would gather and he taught them. And the teaching on this day is interrupted by some commotion in the background. Look at verse 3. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they may have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. So just really try to imagine how painfully uncomfortable this entire scenario would be. As Jesus is sitting with this growing crowd of people, and they are hanging on his every word, and he's teaching them, all of a sudden, there's commotion in the background, and the scribes and the Pharisees are dragging this woman to the center of this space in front of Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us her name, but one thing that we can be certain of because of the details in the story is that she is caught in a tsunami of shame. There's no doubt about that. And if you're like, well, the text doesn't say that she's filled with shame. Well, it doesn't take too much work to think about how incredibly humiliating 
this situation would be. And just in case you're in doubt, let me give you six reasons why I believe that she is embroiled in shame in this moment. First, she's committing adultery. I've met a handful of people that have committed adultery, some in my own family. I got to tell you, I've never met someone that has betrayed their marital vows that does not feel shame about it. So that's number one. Number two, the text is very, very specific. She is caught in the act of committing adultery. She's not brought to Jesus based on a rumor. They caught these two people sleeping together. Now, many scholars believed, believe that the scribes and the Pharisees set a trap for this woman to make this situation happen so that they could orchestrate everything that takes place in this text. But regardless of whether or not that's actually the case, they are caught in the act, and she is most likely dragged with at best a sheet wrapped around her into the center of the temple to stand in front of Jesus and this crowd. Thirdly, notice, like how my, I'm not like super great at math, how many people does it take to commit adultery? Mm, at least two. We live in a weird time. So there could be more, but there can't be less. There has to be two, and only this woman is dragged to this time. So again, she would be filled with shame. Third, what am I at? Fourth, I can't even keep track. There's so many reasons. She's made to stand at the center. All eyes are on her. Just really take a moment and try to empathize with what it would feel like to be standing half naked in front of a group of people being accused of the deepest, darkest sin you've ever committed. That's her situation and her frame of mind. Fifth, she is being exploited in order to trap Jesus. This isn't even really about this woman's righteousness or her lack of holiness or her failure to be faithful to God. It's all about trapping Jesus. They are using her. They created this whole thing to provide this opportunity so that they could try and trap Jesus. She's being used. And then finally, she is in the temple. I don't think that we can fully conceive of this because we don't think of places as holy and sacred in the way that they did in the first century. But you have to know, that alone would have filled this woman's heart and her mind with shame. And so this woman is dragged in, and again, the entire purpose behind it that we're told in the text is they were attempting to trap Jesus. Now, here's the trap that they laid for Jesus. They say, hey, Moses said in the law, if a person is caught in adultery, they're supposed to be stoned. So what do you say? Now, in their minds, they have put Jesus in a real bad situation here because he really, in their mind, can only answer one of two ways. If he defies the law and says, oh, well, I know Moses said that, but now let's not do that today because, you know, I don't feel like having anyone's blood on my hands. Well, then he loses credibility because he has denied the law that he spends so much time as a rabbi teaching other people about and helping them understand more clearly. So he can't just defy the law. But then on the other hand, if he upholds the law and she is stoned, it undermines this very clear example and message of compassion and mercy that was so constant in Jesus' life and ministry. So they think, oh, we've got him backed in to a corner, and no matter what he says, we have him. But Jesus rather than answer, sits down on the ground and begins to write in the dirt. And notice what happens in verse 7. We have no idea what he writes in the dirt, okay? 
Anyone that tells you what it was that he was writing, they have no freaking idea. I've read every commentary I can find on this text. Nobody knows what Jesus was writing. The best guess is that he was, with his finger, writing in the dirt portions of the Old Testament law that was going to support what he was about to say. But if you're like, I wonder what is happening in the dirt, maybe I'm finally, you're not going to learn, okay? We're never going to know. Heaven, ask him there, okay? Look at verse 7 with me. When they persisted in questioning him, so Jesus sits silently, writing in the dirt, saying nothing, and they persist in questioning him. He stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. So in a genius move, on Jesus' part, he avoids this trap altogether by completely reframing the situation. He's like, I'm not going to get pulled into your guys' dumb games, and he has something else to say. And so he finally stands up and he says, how about this? How about whichever one of you has no sin in your life, have at it, throw the first stone. Pretty baller move, right? Refuses to get into a debate with these other teachers of the law, and instead reframes the whole situation, then sits back down and just keeps writing. It's like a mic drop. It's an amazing moment on behalf of Jesus. And in the silence, these scribes and these Pharisees and the surrounding crowd sits and contemplates and considers what it is that Jesus has just said. And then that silence is interrupted by the sound of every person in that courtyard dropping their rock, and walking away. Completely stunned by what it is that Jesus has said. Until there is no one left in that courtyard except Jesus and this woman caught in the act in one of the most dark moments of her life. And watch what happens next. Look at verse 10. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, which just so you know, the way we translate from, that, from Greek sounds like most of you ladies don't love when I'm like, woman, uh, so I don't do that. My wife's not a fan. Uh, but just so you know, the way we translate that from Greek to English, it was a, it was a, a sign and a, a title of respect. If you're hung up on like, why does he just call her woman? It was respectful, okay? Respectfully, woman. That's a paraphrase, okay? <clears throat> Jesus says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. She answered, neither do I condemn you, said Jesus, go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. So question for you, was Jesus in a position to condemn this woman? 100%, no doubt about it. She was caught in the act of adultery. And so her, her, her sin was not in question, only Jesus' response. And Jesus' response was to say, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. And so Jesus' response was compassion, even when condemnation was warranted. And so here's what I think this teaches us this afternoon. Intimacy, which is the overarching theme, again, that we're after in this series that we're in, intimacy in our relationship with God. Intimacy isn't developed 
by diminishing the severity of sin, but receiving the caring embrace of grace. Let me say that again. Intimacy isn't developed by diminishing the severity of sin, but receiving the caring embrace of Jesus' grace. Now, here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes, we're built in such a way or formed in such a way that we spend so much energy trying to convince God, trying to convince the watching world, trying to convince ourselves that we are not that bad. And we pretend and we posture And we hide all so that everyone watching, including ourselves, will get this signal. Like, see, I'm I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And that totally misses the point. Thinking that if we're not that bad, somehow we are more worthy and accepted and loved by God. But that mindset totally misses the point of grace. So intimacy is not developed by diminishing the severity of our sin, by trying to hide it by trying to pretend like it's not as bad as what it actually is. Intimacy is developed by receiving the caring embrace of Jesus' grace. And so the question is, how do we actually go about doing that? I don't know about you, but grace is pretty hard for me to embrace. I'm super good at being very judgmental toward myself and very condemning toward myself and everyone else who drives a car in Utah. I'm telling you, our sin is no, never more present than when we are driving in Utah. It's just anarchy everywhere we go. So let's talk real quick about some practicality around how do we actually embrace grace. Here's number one. Number one, allow Jesus to silence your accusers. Allow Jesus to silence your accusers. Now, here's the thing. Just like this woman, every single one of us in our life have accusers. We have all of these accusers that claim that God could never love us. We have accusers that claim that we deserve condemnation. We have accusers that claim that it's up to you to clean yourself up so that you can be loved and accepted by God. And the challenge with this is that these accusers in our life come in so many different forms. But broadly speaking, there are external accusers and there are internal ones. And so our lives, most of us, have been filled with at least a handful of external accusers. It could have been a very harsh, mean-spirited parent that you were brought up with. Could have been an unhealthy spiritual authority that you've experienced at some point that spoke death rather than life into your heart. Our culture certainly screams this message at us in a number of different ways. And never is that more loud than in religion, which is just this constant message that you have to do more and work harder to be loved and accepted by God. So we have those external accusers that are hard enough to silence, but maybe even more difficult are the internal ones. We internalize and we believe these messages that we hear for so long, especially the ones that we hear when we are the smallest. And the problem is these beliefs run so deep in us. And as a result of that, like what we want is we want to come to church 
for 60 to 90 minutes, we want to hear one sermon that's going to take all that away. We want it to be like fast food style, just your way, right away, super quick. I want to get in. I want to get out. I want to feel better. I want this to go away. And the reality is, because these things run so deep, silencing them takes time. I'm not a huge fan of, of, uh, of acronyms, but I'm going to give you an acronym with the word time tonight. And just forgive me for the nerddom of that, okay? Because I do think, I was, I was praying about it this afternoon, I, re- I really do think that these four things are so critical in, in being able to root out and silence these lies with time, okay? So the T stands for, it's going to require tenacity from us. And by that I mean this is a process, it's rarely a moment, and it doesn't happen quick. And so it's going to require tenacity. It's going to require patience. It's going to require endurance on our part, that we will stay at the work of trying to put these lies to death in our hearts. So tenacity is the T. The I stands for intention. This does require work. One of the great lies, I think, that the enemy is so skilled in embedding in our souls is that because we are a people of grace, that we are anti-work or anti-effort. And so just as clearly as I can think to state this for you, we are not saved We are not justified. We are not accepted by God because of the things that we do. But make no mistake, our formation, our growth in godliness, that requires effort and work. And I can't remember which smart old dead guy said this, but it was something to the effect of that that, that grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. Which is very critical for us to think categorically about these things. So it's going to take intention. It's go- I'm telling you, right? It's going to take more work than you showing up here once or twice a month to hear me blab for 30 minutes. It's going to take more work than that. And so it's going to take tenacity. It's going to take intention. And then the M is it's going to require meditation on our part, specifically meditation on the very words of God. Places like in in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when the Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, my guess is you've probably read that at some point. You've heard that voice, that verse at some point. But oftentimes we don't sit in a contemplative, slow, intentional way with these words of Scripture. And so as a result, they have this tendency to kind of go in one ear and out the other, or to just kind of store up in this place in our brain that holds information, but it does not move over into actual experience, which is a problem. And so we have to meditate on these things and really sit with them for long periods of time so that they actually begin to take root in our hearts. So tenacity, intention, meditation, and then fourthly is encouragement. You cannot do this in isolation and on your own. You need other people to be a part of your journey. And so at formation, the easiest way for that to happen is in one of our formation groups. And we're restructuring a bunch of those right now. And so if you are not currently in a formation group, when Mackenzie comes up in a few minutes to do the announcements, there's a place for you to click that you want more information about that on your info card. And so do that. Because you need the encouragement of other people around you, 
working toward the same end that you are, which is to be formed in the image of Jesus. So if we're going to silence the accusers in our lives, it's going to take tenacity, intention, meditation, and encouragement. All right? So we're talking about how do we actually embrace grace. The first thing is we have to allow Jesus to silence our accusers. But the second thing is we have to admit, and this is uncomfortable, but we have to admit the severity of our sin. We have to admit the severity of our sin. Now, I want to be super, super clear about something. Everything that takes place in this story in John 8, with the exception of Jesus' response, every single thing about it is despicable. What these scribes and these Pharisees do to this, regardless of her sin, I'm in no way justifying the sin of adultery, but I will say what they did is horrible, disgusting, and a shameful act on their part. And, as is always the case, there was a surprising gift within this horrible situation for this woman. And by that I mean... Her sin is no longer a secret. And that was embarrassing and humiliating, and this was handled in the worst, most evil way possible. But there is grace in the fact that her sin was no longer a secret. There was no point in her pretending. There was nowhere for her to hide. There was no choice for her but to stand and to say, this is who I am, and this is what I've done. And remember that Jesus' response to that is to say, welcome, let me show you a better way. And so the lesson in this for us is this, when we hide sin, we hinder our experience of grace. When we hide our sin, we hinder our experience of grace. Compassion from Jesus has a way of cultivating intimacy in our relationship with him. And so the more honest that we are about our sin, the more readily that Jesus pours out his grace and pours out his mercy and pours out his compassion. And we miss all that when we walk around trying to pretend like we have everything together. And so the more that we hide our sin, the more we hinder that experience of grace. Or as we say at our church, Whatever is hidden can't be healed. And so we start by allowing Jesus to silence our accusers. Secondly, we have the humility to admit the severity of our own sin. And then thirdly, we accept Jesus' words of grace over us. And that sounds so great. And I don't know about you, but that is so hard for me to do to just receive his words of grace. Maybe you're not broken in the same way that I am, but I have, I have like no problem speaking words of affirmation over other people. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? It's painfully uncomfortable, isn't it? Like it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago, and thanks to Matt Johnson, who's the worst, he got everybody in the back corner to sing happy birthday to me. I wanted to run into traffic. I was so uncomfortable. It was an act of love. And and as a side note, I think that the tradition of singing to one another on our birthday is weird. I just think it's a weird tradition. But in this in this like big circle of people singing over me because they love me, I was just like, "Well, I hate every moment of this." 
And if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone looking you in the eyes and speaking a word of affirmation over you, it can be very, very uncomfortable. And so it sounds really, really great to say, we have to accept Jesus' words of grace over us. Cool. Those first two were pretty hard. This one is a slam dunk. I disagree. This might be the hardest of the three. So many of us have heard these condemning accusations for so long that they have calcified to our souls. They are our reality. But you need to hear that Jesus is speaking a different story, and it is the story of grace. He loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. And where once hung a banner over your life that said, condemned. There now hangs a banner that says, beloved. And maybe more than anything else, our spiritual formation is about learning to believe that we are God's beloved. And I think that is very, very difficult for most of us to do. And as a result, one of the most powerful practices that God has given us to this end is communion. It is a tangible way where we learn to accept Jesus' grace spoken over us and poured out toward us. Because in communion, we do two things. First, we remember the lengths that Jesus went to to make us his beloved. He gave everything in our place for our sin. If you've even done a cursory study of what crucifixion entailed, it's literally the most horrific way that a person could die. And Jesus laid down his life in that manner for us. And so in communion, we remember the lengths that Jesus went to to make us his beloved, but we also receive his grace over and over and over and over again. And so, communion has a way, with time, it's at least part of the process of silencing our accusers. Communion requires us to admit our sin. And then finally, communion is one of the ways that we accept Jesus' words of grace spoken over us. And so before we close our time together, at the end of our services, we try to always build in a time for us to be able to respond to what it is that the Spirit of God is saying to us through his word. And so we're going to do this in two ways. We're going to take just a moment to be able to reflect on everything that we've just heard and ask the Holy Spirit a very simple question. What are you inviting me to in this? It could be something to believe. It could be a practice that he wants us to adopt. You've heard a lot. So just sit with the Spirit of God for 60 seconds and ask him, what is it that you are inviting me to? And then after our time of reflection, I'm going to invite you to come to the communion tables and to remember what Jesus gave for you and to receive his grace again. So before we move into our time of reflection, why don't you bow your head with me? Let me pray over you. Holy Spirit, I thank you for each and every one of these people. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. 
And Lord, in all we've talked about this afternoon, little of it is, is easy or simple. And so we need your help. And so in these next couple of moments, would you give us clarity to understand what it is that you are inviting us to? And as we come to remember communion together, Lord, I pray that in a new and a fresh way, your grace and your mercy would pervade our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is struggling to believe that there is no condemnation for them in you, God, I just pray that you would speak love and grace and mercy. If there's someone here that just wants this to be over so they can get out of this room and out of the discomfort, God, would you draw them to yourself? Help them to know how deeply they are loved, how deeply they are desired, Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you love us. Holy Spirit, what are you inviting us to?